Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have got a great show for you today. As always, we're talking tennis, but today we're diving deep into the way professional tennis makes its way into our homes. Today we're talking broadcast, distribution, and deals. Today we're talking tennis television. And there's no one more inside that world than this guy. For the past four decades, he's had an almost zealot-like career in television. From corporate restructures to shifting distribution plans to the advent of new forms of media, this guy has had a front row seat to nearly every major development in television and media. And since 2006, he's been the president and CEO of Tennis Channel, helping usher it into the digital age, making it the network for tennis in America, and one of the fastest growing networks in the United States, period. You generally don't see him on television, but he is, as the great Reggie Jackson would say, the straw that stirs the drink. Ken Solomon is going to tell us how combining the WTA and ATP broadcasts builds both businesses, what it's like to collaborate and compete with networks like ESPN, what not to do as a ball boy, and what brings a tear to Rod Laver's eye. We met up with Ken some time ago during the BNP Paribas Open. This is uh, the presidential suite at the Westin in Mission Hills. Literally, uh, I was going to make a joke that we were in the presidential suite because we're speaking to the president of the Tennis Channel, Ken Solomon. My man, it's very nice to see you as always. Great to be with you, man. Um, this place is wild, man. There's tennis courts, there's golf, there's, there's ducks. So you may, you may <laughs> hear ducks, you may hear mallards uh, quacking. Um, let's just get right into this. First of all, you know, we met, um, you guys commissioned me a long time ago now to do a documentary on Agassi that from time to time we still see on the network. Um, and that's when we, that's when we met. You had just started kind of cracking over there. Yeah, no, that was, um, a seminal piece of work that you did for us. And I remember, well, the goal was I need to set the standard for the kind of excellence that we want to achieve. And that sounds all highfalutin, but the reality is we wanted to really raise the bar. And what you did with Agassi Between the Lines was to set that bar. And I have had people come back to me in just in the last year, talking about the expanse of where we've been and where we've come to, and said that they knew the writers and people who observe and said they knew the turning point was that doc, which came out before the book and, and really was sort of presage to everything that Andre, almost everything. I was going to say, in the, book. the only thing he kind of didn't drop was how significantly mismatched he was with Brooke. <laughs> and there's another moment in the book that he didn't really share. Yeah. Uh, well, look, oh, we don't have to be shy about that. I mean, I, and I by think, the way, he didn't share that he was losing his hairpiece. That's at true. The French. Yeah. That, and, and, and really the drug thing. And I think that, you know, that sold the book, but the reality is I think people overplayed 500%. That. It, because what it that showed is how far you can fall. And look, whether you fall into a bottle for a while of any sort or a pill bottle, or or the drug of choice. He was just depressed and he hit that bottom. And in a way, if he hadn't, I don't know if he would have come back into what probably is the greatest comeback story ever. But to this day, that piece that you produce will always be critical 
to as the turning point in the evolution creatively of the network. Ah, Ken. That's I true. Mean, Thank you. That that's the nicest thing I've heard in a very long time. You know, typically we do a five-set format with a set for on the court and one for off the court. But you and Tennis Channel are constantly shuffling between on and off court. And beyond that, you guys seem to have cameras on the side of every court in the sport, using technology to bring tennis to people in ways that are fresh and expansive. So I'd like to do a single supersized set number one. It's not on the court or off the court. It's the cutting edge of the court report. Right at the top of the year, you guys announced, Tennis Channel announced, that you got the WTA tournaments back onto the network. To me, that's one of the most significant things there is right now. It, it is a watershed moment. You, you are right. For our yeah. listeners, the WTA contract somehow ended up on BN, uh, the Qatari network. And, and people were outraged. You know, you'd have an incredible semifinal and they'd be showing, you know, a Turkish soccer game. The soccer is their go-to sport. They've got incredible soccer contracts, and they completely were bobbling the tennis, and everyone was up in arms, particularly in the United States. Yeah, and I'll give you some color behind that. So, uh, because it's instructive as to the game itself, everything that makes tennis great also makes it complicated when it comes to the media. In this particular case, I wouldn't even say it was anyone's fault. What really happened was that the WTA created a joint venture with Perform, who is a worldwide production company, in order to sell the rights. And we're talking about the international tournaments. We had the domestic tournaments here in the U.S. and on North American soil because they get to choose where their stuff is played in the home territory, if you will. And then Perform and WTA did a master overall worldwide deal with BN, which didn't take into account the subtlety of the fact that their network here would have trouble scheduling um, WTA tennis, just as every general entertainment or multi-sport network does because the format doesn't fit. Well, they had the money to load up and then they didn't have the wherewithal to broadcast. In a sense, the U.S. was a casualty. Again, no one's fault, but it was frustrating to us because we felt that we frankly had built the franchise with the WTA. We had taken it from 50 matches to 1,500 and we're heading north. Um, but, you know, we couldn't fight a worldwide movement just here in the U.S. But what happened was that the good news is with the long tail, um, it, it became apparent, painfully apparent to all of the rest of the world, what you and I and tennis fans were feeling and angry at us for, which was that they couldn't see these great WTA matches, even as we were expanding our coverage with all other franchises. And the name of the pitch, if you will, to try to convince the worldwide board of the WTA that they had to come back was separate is not equal. Because it got to a point where the very notion of having the WTA international competitions on a channel other than the home where every other major tennis franchise lived meant it wasn't going to be equal in the in the sort of double entendre of the separate is not equal colloquialism. We heard that you're having the WTA has boosted viewership of the men, yeah? I don't know that there's anything I know that you don't know, Craig, but mm. what I what I do know is that one of the great debates in this sport is, you know, the men versus the women inside the sport. And and one thing we know categorically is there are some inside the ATP 
you know, whether it's young male players who just, look, they're trained to be, to eat what they kill, they don't realize that their greatest single asset is the women. We just proved it. One thing we know categorically is that the women have helped us raise the attention to the game for both the women and the men by over half in just a few months. It was a switch going off, putting them back You're in. You're saying that the second you guys started rocking those tournaments, your numbers jumped. Plus 50%, it actually started plus 100. But I will tell you, on December 30th, when we went to four box with four locations, you get a little teary-eyed because you realize we're finally showing everything that's going on and then just able to, like jazz, follow 100%. The action wherever it's happening and not have to leave anything. Oh, by the way, uh, I mean, a couple weeks ago, Sao Paulo, Acapulco. I mean, there was five tournaments. Yep. And you guys were on from the morning yep. Dubai to the, Dubai, to the, the second you wake up in the morning you bet. To, the, to the last. Delray Beach. There was tennis going when you went to bed. Yes, it never stops. And that's. That is the thing that's so special about the game, and we had to build this place to do it. So the WTA coming back now, there's two things that have been incredibly satisfying. One in doing it was that we went up against some big competition, folks like Amazon and big streaming companies. Um, no, Amazon is, they've got the they've got the European situation covered. They're trying to take you out of this? Well, you know, we looked at different combinations. They certainly are Amazon. They're a very big player. And ESPN and ESPN Plus with their streaming also uh, wanted to take it. We ultimately said that now that we're in over 60 million homes, that the best combination for the fan and for the sport itself to be able to see as much of it as possible, not to mention have the context that we bring with our great talent in front of and behind the camera and all the work we do, was to have Tennis Channel because we could be in front of a big national TV audience and then make virtually every match available on the Tennis Channel Plus app so that you could see everything. So, so you got that deal done when? We got it done around at the U.S. Open. Took a little while to announce. Uh, it took a little while to announce. Man. Yeah, because you still had to kind of get the I's dotted and the T's crossed. But right. we all shook hands. And the magic is that in getting it done and in coming back now with so many more tournaments actually being filmed because of the technology advancing so much since you and I did that documentary yeah, where yeah. you have every match re remote production and the quality of those matches is better than what the majors look like 15 years ago from the more exotic locations um since then uh our ratings directly attributable to all of those additional matches being added our ratings have been up in uh, uh, almost 50 percent year over year because now you've got the WTA and the ATP usually in three to four different places around the world. And at any given moment, we're bringing you to the place that's most important and saying, if you wanna see any other part in its entirety, go to the streaming platform and it's there for you. And we think this is the model that actually wins, not just in tennis, but in all of television, mm -hmm. because that's the beauty of what tennis has, is continuity going on 24 seven with these great stories from January to December. Well, I gotta say, I'm not surprised that these other players 
are trying to jump on these once perceived as tertiary pieces of, of, of live yeah. content. Yeah, like nobody wanted Rome. <laughs> nobody wanted Monte Carlo. Nobody, you know what I mean? And now... Yeah, those are primary now. I mean, obviously... But I'm saying, but, 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 but nobody wanted Charleston. You're doing... But, but the fact of the matter is, is week in and week out, the tennis is off the charts. What are some of your and the network day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month biggest challenges? <laughs> That's a long list. We better make this a mini-series. Well, no, 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 give me the, you know, give me I, the top I, Look, two. I think I, there's always the challenge of getting out of our own way of the sport. You know, the twin um, benefit and curse of, of tennis from a leadership perspective is that it's fractionalized. So it's a benefit because you we, we have the ability to create alignment among leadership as it pertains to media to make one plus one equal three for the fan. And everybody recognizes that they do better when we're together and worse helping synergize. The challenge is you got a lot of different voices. Look, they're just crazy challenges with, if you're producing all over the world simultaneously, 24 seven, 365, with a network of really talented craftsmen who are painting these pictures, who don't sleep. It's round the clock. The smoke's coming out of our building. We're, we're camped out here with 100 people in the desert. Tomorrow, the day after this, Miami will be lit up doing the same thing, and then we'll be in Charleston, and then we'll be on the road to Roland Garros and all those European clays, as well as everything else that's going on. The challenge is, is just staying in front of it. Um, Challenges staying in front. It really is. That just on a daily basis and raising our game and not taking for granted that what we did the day before is the way we should do it tomorrow. We got to replace ourselves. We have to be the next evolution of ourselves every single day. And it's hard when you're running to also say, how do we do it better? How do we make it better every day? Let's talk about your day-to-day, day-to-day of Ken Solomon. So you start the year in Australia. What's the most significant thing you did in Australia? Um, show up, not at the Australian Open, but on December 30th, with all of the tournaments leading up to Australia, it's our summer down under tent pole, colored like the Australian powder blue that we've come to know. And all of a sudden, we're running actually 100% year over year in terms of viewership. We're doing the same thing we have been doing, which is building content. I mean, you yourself, you went, you go down there. Yes. You yourself flew down there. Yes. What did you, the most significant thing you did down there? Like, yeah. do you have a meeting with Rod Laver? Did I'll tell you. Did you have yes. dinner with Roger Federer? Yes. So I think the most interesting thing is I sat with Rod, um, who has been a very close friend of ours and talked about the state of tennis together. He was waiting for Roger to come up and see him. So, you know, everyone else goes to see Roger. Roger comes up to see Rod. That's the kind of guy he is. That's the kind of guy Rod is. You know, we were also celebrating the Labor Cup together. Rod talked about after the first Labor Cup, he came home and he was able to see what we did with it because we made it available over the course of the week for those that missed it live. And it brought a tear to his eye to see the level of quality that we brought and how far the game has come. And when you have a Rod who had to fight to be allowed to take $1 to feed his family to play professional tennis, and then a Roger who is the epitome of how far this sport has come. He's the highest paid athlete on the planet. 
his celebrity ranks above the Brad Pitts of the world. By the way, it's incredible. Right? It's incredible. They, we were in London at the end of the year Masters and people travel to see Roger Federer. He is a worldwide global star. He's, There's no doubt no, about no, that. No one like him. And by the way, so is Rafa. So is Novak. So is Serena. So still are, are, is, is Venus. So still is Maria. So are the upcoming players. Sloane Stevens has that star power. But hold on. So you leave Australia. And get right back into it. And where and, you come right back to L.A. And we're in L.A. But then we're bouncing into New York to start preparing for the WTA uh, you know, kind of being engulfed into what we do and trying to advance the game. So we're meeting in sales meetings in New York with the WTA senior team and Mickey Lawler. I and mean, you're free, your frequent flyer number of miles. I might have to be out, outrageous. I get, I'm sitting on a Delta flight uh, and uh, the someone apparently very important on the plane comes out and says, Mr. Solomon, we're glad you're with us. I said, thank you. Why is that? And they said, well, you have over a million and a half miles, and I, that's not my primary airline, so Jeez, don't, don't let my wife hear what's this your, What's your secret to the travel? Do you, um, sleep, do you sleep well on planes, or you just work straight through? I, what do you do? I, I find that the plane ride itself is a great place to, to gather your thoughts. Regroup, you know, A 15-hour yeah. flight on these new A380s where you have clean air and the ability to not have to speak for for that period of time really allows you it's almost meditative and you can read you can catch up i do a lot of writing Is that right? about different parts of the sport that we think we need to advance next there's so much going on um, but what keeps me going is the game itself it's you know we're here 15 years into it and it feels like the first day every day because there's so much Tennis is winning. This is a picture of a sport not re-emerging, but emerging in a way that it was never seen before. No one got to see this much of it before. 100%. Ken Solomon is, I mean, honestly breaking it down. Listen, no notes, man. The coverage is outstanding. Let's move into our second set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Where does your tennis begin? My tennis begins right here, actually just a couple blocks from here at uh, Mission Hills where this tournament started and I used to ball boy. Who'd you ball boy for? First one was the Davis Cup, the US versus Mexico at the Racquet Club in Palm Springs. And it was Stan, essentially Stan Smith and Bob Lutz led by Jack Kramer and uh, Tony oh, Traver. First Raul Ramirez. Against Raul Ramirez. And I ball boyed the final. Was Higueras there too? Jose Higueras was there. Um, I actually have the full list. And I have the t the ball boy T-shirt, which had press-on letters that said Davis Cup and Racquet Club on it, on a green T-shirt. And I will never forget that stadium because there was equal fandom for Mexico and the U.S. In the fifth rubber, it was Stan against Ramirez. Stan Smith, you know, the idol and icon. Raul Ramirez, I'll never forget, he, had, he, he, he used sawdust in his pocket yeah. to keep his hand dry. Yeah. That... Those bleachers that they had built at the racquet club where I grew up and my grandparents had helped build with Charlie Farrell and Clark Gable, I thought were going to fall over. They were stomping and screaming and cheering. And it was the most amazing, energetic experience you could ever have. And um, it, it, you know, I'll never forget it. And then the beginning of this tournament at Mission Hills, 
And I was a ball boy for what was the American Airlines tennis games. And my father won the Pro-Am the first year. Uh, Connors and Ash, I believe, played in the final, the first final. Our friend Bruce Manson in, in the second or third year beat Borg and in in, drew him in the first round as a lucky loser. He was sleeping in my bedroom back when players would sleep over at your house. Right. And Bruce was the second tier, so he slept in my bedroom while the, uh, the players and their family slept in our guest house. And I was out there on that court, and of all the matches, I was ball boying for John Alexander, and I was playing net, which is a lot of pressure. You're running the net, you're, you're running the balls But you're the a net. kid, and you're yeah. in the middle of something that matters. And Alexander hits a return of serve, and it goes into the net, and I'm at net. It's right in front of me. I thought it was gonna hit me in the head. And I jumped up to grab the ball. And as I jumped up, the ball had such velocity that it actually crawled over the net and onto the other side. And Alexander won the point, but they called it a let because I moved. Oh. And it's almost the worst thing that could thought I was going to die. And when John Alexander looked at me, I almost did. He later came over and said, it's okay. Thank God he won that point on the replay. <laughs> but I'll tell you, you put a kid in the middle of that situation and it, there is nothing comparable to that in the world because you actually are part of it. You never forget it. Yeah, it's really cool stuff. So I thought you were from New York, but you went to Palm Springs High School? I went to Palm Springs High School. I did do that and... and uh, but which one is it? You grew up in New York? Well, that's true. I mean, it goes back a little further, but my family came out here since the 30s, my grandparents and then my parents, and ultimately we did this crazy thing and actually moved here. It's funny because last night there was a big event that Chris Everett was, was uh, feted for, Rosie Casal's charity. Um, and they gave a young player the award, and the coach of that young player was Janie Garcia, who I went to high school with, and she was a TA at Raymond Cree Junior High School. So I did grow up here, and, um, and, 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 in, and back east, and I kind of feel the tennis culture of both of those places. And you're, but you have a, you come from like a tennis-ish family. More than ish. I mean, my dad has been a tournament caliber player. That's right, your street. father is like it, a tournament player. And ranked in the top 10 virtually in singles and doubles since he was in his late 30s. But then sort of as his fourth or fifth back for fun, decided to try to elevate senior tennis has been brought into the Southern California Tennis Hall of Fame this year. That was one of the greatest. For me, being able to do the induction speech for him was really exciting. You know, my father was a mega tennis person. Uh, he loved tennis. I mean, so, it's uh, generational and that's not inconsequential. I know you went to UCLA. Um, you're a club player. Would that be fair to say? Or you're yeah, a well, the joke is that I, for, I was never gonna be the best in my family. So I actually, forsook the game for a while in the world of leaving and coming back. And I became captain of the UCLA water ski team. I literally said, I'm not gonna be good enough. And frankly- Wait, hold on, you have just, you're, there was a water skiing there's team There was a water ski UCLA. team at UCLA. I always was, I started water skiing when I was six. I said, I can be best at this in the family. And so I became captain of the, you see what drives us to do things. Now you're, I, in a, you're a great water skier. I, uh, I was a tournament slalom and jumper, a mediocre tricker, but I jumped and slalomed. And uh, we actually went to the regionals, which was a big deal. Uh, I have to tell you, I did not know that there most was people water, don't I know did not that. know there was college water skiing. <laughs> is, that, is that still a thing? It is very much a thing. And, you know, in certain parts of the country, if you go up to Sacramento or down to Florida, it's a primary sport. UCLA, tough to muscle out. 
not only tennis, but obviously football and basketball and, and all the other things. So what right. years were you on UCLA campus? I started in 79, um, actually 80, because I, I did a year here at College of the Desert because my parents wouldn't let me go away because I was 15 and a half. I don't think they trusted me to go to uh, UCLA part, alone. The other part of the story was you graduated early. Yeah. Because you had gone to Horace Mann. You had, yeah. Horace Mann is a big time high school in New York. And you had like advanced credit, so you got you guys finessed a deal to get you out. I was in a hurry uh, always. You were on the UCLA campus at the early '80s, so yeah. that had to be an incredible experience. It was. Um, it was big. You know, I think UCLA was in many ways was not only an amazing experience, but a challenge in learning how to navigate that campus and you know what do we have 40,000 undergrad i mean you know oh, this, is, right? this is a big place and the was. ski team was a cool way to do it i was also running a mobile uh disco business so i would work you know on the weekends i'd do all the fraternity parties and make money and you're hustling i was working a second job uh as uh, selling insurance on the phone calling people blindly and and then coming out here on the weekends and running the ski team um, so, and I, I actually, the fun story is that when I first got there, I roomed with two Olympic level UCLA volleyball stars and it was fun. It was crazy. Cause these guys were going to the Olympics. It oh, was, man. I mean, we, we had all of the world's Karch, everybody Karch was wandering around our everybody. apartment, Steve Timmons. Steve Timmons. Uh, I also learned something interesting. Those know, are big volleyball names. These man. guys those were, were huge. Those guys were in your dorm? They were, in, no, it wasn't even a dorm. We had an off-campus apartment. Got it. And Incredible. our apartment was pretty fun. I was by far the shortest person in the room always. Yeah. Um, these guys had incredible capacity. And frankly, they could party pretty well too. Oh, I bet. And, uh, but I'll tell you this, everyone, you know, with the Crosstown rivalry, it was interesting. You'd see kind of some of the anger that, that can develop between people of different sides. And they the got ugly now and then. And these guys USC, were USC, UCLA, UCLA is what you're talking and, about. And Pepperdine, right? Which were Pepperdine had big volleyball. Controlling sure. the sport. And these guys were best friends. And when it got ugly, they would they would calm a fan down and go, what are you talking about? He's a great guy. Good lesson. That's interesting. So now, did you parlay an internship at Paramount into? Yes. Well, it was sort of the other way around. I, I wanted to go into the entertainment business and, and had a lead to get on the Paramount lot and went in in a borrowed Brooks Brothers hand-me-down suit from a, a, a sort of an uncle of mine and his uh, hand-me-down Gucci loafers, um, you know, to go get an internship. And I bought every trade from, you know, Hollywood Reporter and Variety and newspapers and walked in like it was gonna make me look smart with those under my arm. And I was a professional magician. And so I uh, actually did a, an illusion uh, at the desk of the executive vice president of Paramount Television as part of my interview. And I think he probably said, well, this kid at least knows how to talk in front of somebody. And I think in spite of whatever I said in that interview, uh, I convinced him uh, to give me a shot. Um we learned that you, you basically you started selling Cheers and syndication yeah, that's right. to like Iowa and yes. Idaho and yeah. Montana. Was that your first big kind of hustle? It was, <laughs> yeah, I've <laughs> been hustling ever since. I think that's fair to say, you know, the way it worked Can you is, explain? Yeah, because we think it's interesting because you were at the beginning of syndication and now you're at the beginning of 
yeah. all this craziness with the digital platforms. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. You know, everybody knew about ABC, NBC, and CBS. There was no Fox. But the reality is that the big money was made by syndicating TV shows to each individual market for local time periods. And so I convinced the Paramount guys that the, the big salespeople would never get to small markets like Palm Springs, right? Or like uh, Medford, Oregon, or Zanesville, Ohio. And so I'd call them on the phone and try to sell them shows and eventually convince them to let me get on a plane and go see them. Hold on, what shows? Tell shows, us shows like Cheers and Family Ties. Even before that, Happy Days in Laverne and Shirley, oh, come Taxi, on. Mork and Mindy. So like Channel 38 in, you know, Warwick, Rhode Island. Exactly. That's they, what you, you put in cheers. And what happened then was the TV stations were going on the air. There was no cable. So the big expansion was independent TV stations. And between all those shows and, and Paramount had the biggest library in television and the movies, which would put into packages, we could put you into business. <laughs> we used to call it affectionately backing up the truck. By putting it all together, we could make you a deal. We had two shows that could make a TV station. One of them was The Brady Bunch in syndication because it would come out of kids' shows in the afternoon into comedies in the evening. It was the transition show. Everyone loved The Brady Bunch. And the other one- Everyone loved The Brady Bunch. Was Star Trek. And we had Star Trek, the original 79 episodes. And that was the best syndicating show there was. You knew that if you put Star Trek on, people would find your station. But how is it that, they, that you, and you were the one that figured out we got to sell this? Well, no, I was, you what I was doing was going to the smaller markets that they'd never get to and generating big money. So I walked in, this is back in, you know, the early 80s to the president of Paramount's office at one point with my first quarter summary at the behest of Greg Mydell, the executive vice president and general sales manager. And he said, tell him what you've done. And I was kind of a lark. I, I think I was making about $12,000 a year at the time. And I just, I said, this is a new job, let me try. And I walked in and I believe that I had sold about six and a half million dollars worth of shows for cash uh, in places where none of that would have sold just by showing up and doing magic tricks for the general managers and then showing them why we could make them number one in their market with our shows. And I think the president was sort of dumbfounded. That was real money back then. It's not so bad now. And I, all I asked for was an actual parking space on the lot so I didn't have to park on the street outside, which I got. <laughs> Sounds like you did better than that. Now, you're selling Brady Bunch, you're selling Cheers, and how yeah. do you end up president of Tennis Channel? The way that I did it is by thinking about what a consumer wants and what I want as a consumer and a fan. But I went from Paramount to the evolution. The Paramount team went to Disney and relaunched Disney. Jeffrey Katzenberg, Michael Eisner, Rich Frank, a bunch of folks who wrote history. And then from there to the emerging Fox network as taken over by Barry Diller and Rupert Murdoch, who were about to change the world. We ultimately built a fourth network, which they said could never be done. Now I'm 167th network, or now there's infinite networks in a sense. Um, but went to Fox and first helped run syndication and then launched FX, the first cable channel that a studio FX. had, the FX network, and then went uh, to on to help build the network itself. And, and then from there, 
um, went to DreamWorks, you know, and I'd done everything in distribution and business in the TV world and thought, well, they're integrated, not separate. There are no silos. We're just doing one job in different parts of it. And who better to learn from than at the knee of Steven Spielberg and Jeffrey Katzenberg and David Geffen, three of the greatest minds in the history of, of the entertainment and media business, who were starting the first new studio in 50 years. And I said, I just got to go be a part of that. And <laughs> luckily enough, the, I got to and be co-head of, of the television business. And then the world changed again. And it verticalized, and Disney bought ABC, and and that's when I got asked to be the president of Universal Studios Television. And the chance to run a major studio and pull those levers and touch people on a mass scale through the written word and through, you know, in this case, a show called Law & Order, which we brought to fruition and did the first sequel of, but we also had fun shows like Hercules and Xena, which were the number one and two syndicated show. Mm. It was a special time. And then Barry Diller came in and bought that company, who was brilliant, a challenging boss in the best sense of the word, who I had worked for twice before, and said, I'm going to redo the model again. And in fact, we did. And then, uh, you know, you could see the digital world coming around the turn of the century, literally in the late 90s, and right around the time of Napster, a friend of mine, Michael Lambert, said, you know, these TV stations, we can do something forward thinking. And we built a company called iBlast, which was the first sort of massive download data casting company that most people never heard of. Um, and we learned a lot and we're actually about 20 years ahead of our time. Really what iTunes has become in many ways is what iBlast was. But we had hundreds of television stations joined together to create something better for the consumer. Mm. We were just a little early and Napster scared the hell out of the content owners. So we had to wait. In the interim, someone else was really changing the paradigm of cable TV and that was Ken Lowe, who had been at Scripps Howard and had created Scripps Networks because he believed that if you had hundreds of magazines about shelter, that that would probably make a pretty good channel. And he started HGTV and everyone thought that can't be a television network. And then he added Food Network to it and everyone said, well, food's not a channel. And those became multi-billion dollar. The guy knocked it out of the park. He did and he said, I want you to come. Scripps. And launch a channel for me. I said, well, you've done pretty well without me. And we decided to do one called Fine Living based on the notion of living the best life for you, regardless of money. It was not the Rob Report. It was the beginning of sort of the mask on class. It wasn't Lifestyles of Rich and Famous. It was the opposite of yeah. that. It, yeah. And we built the channel, and then I did that. And then, uh, you know, and then when I was sort of done with that after four years and, and, and set the baby on its way, uh, Frank Biondi, who had been the head of Universal Studios and a famous executive, and Philippe Demont and Tom Dooley, who were the head of Viacom, we're starting this idea of Tennis Channel and they asked me to come in and, you know, here we are. I, we thought this was going to be a quick thing. And here we Is are. Is that right? And this was going to be the shortest job I ever had after a long list of them that you just heard. And instead, here I am pushing 15 years later and it feels like the first day every day. We're now the fastest growing network in television with the by far the largest growing audience. We're on all platforms. We have Tennis Magazine, and we're bringing that into modernity and growing it. And we're on OTT, and we're in iTunes, and we're making movies. And it's the gift that keeps on giving. And this 
This oldest sport and pastime is now once again cutting edge. Now, um, you became the president of Tennis Channel. You've done a lot of different things, but my feeling and my sense of it is 2007, you pulled the greatest rabbit out of the hat. You got the <laughs> French Open rights. You became the rights holder from pillar to post with the exception of, I think, a, a day in the middle and then yeah. a day on the middle weekend goes to NBC maybe and then the back end of the tournament, uh, the right. semis and the finals. But you still even have that in rerun. But uh, yeah. you got the French Open rights. That's... That's the that's a big thing for the tennis. That's the biggest thing there is at that moment. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I came in feeling like if we never got a major, the primary rights to a major, we could be incredibly successful because it, in effect, there were majors going on all the time, just in different places. A major's where those four tournaments or six tournaments come together to one. But the, you virtualize that on TV. So we went to Roland Garros and said, look, as far as I can see, you've got about... 15 hours on NBC and only a handful of hours on ESPN. We'll take everything out. Well, that's where, and ESPN was soft on the on that tournament. I mean, at least that, the way I know the story is because there was a dearth of Americans that were doing well over there. You know, I, I, I don't, were a I don't actually think that's why, Craig, no. even though it seemed that way. I think the answer is that's the way it was done. 65 hours wasn't looked at as soft. It was like, why would, they don't have the shelf space for more tennis. Well, you swoop down like, uh, well, like Game of Thrones on one of those dragons and pull that, that, that out. That's that a fact. Was, I, I have to give credit to the great Donald Dell. Donald Dell, we've heard his name uh, multiple times on our show. Um, one of the, you know, architect. Yeah, uh, he was a player. He is Davis Cup coach. He was pro serve. He is a he's bigger than an insider. He is one of the pivotal people in it. So was he repping the French Tennis Federation? He was to be perfectly honest. He's known as Donald Deal. And well into his 70s, he yeah. has not slowed down one bit. He, he is a, a deal maker. He's Arthur Ashe's agent. He was he just Yannick Noah. Um, he is Joachim Noah's agent now, to give you an idea of the, oh, really? the breath. And he was one of the founding, you know, ATP um, architects with yeah. Jack Kramer, um, Davis Cup captain. So he was broker in the French Open. He understood the opportunity and the tennis had to grow and therefore um, was very kindly to me and said, here's what you need to do. And I basically had one lunch to make this happen or not. And that lunch was going to be in Geneva, Switzerland with a gentleman by the name of Michel Grosh. And we had the audacious notion, because we we're only in 15 million homes, that we were actually gonna, in order to split it up, we had to control it. So we said, sell it to us and we'll go back to ESPN and see if they'll do it with us. Cause they weren't, if ESPN bought it, they wouldn't probably want to share it with us. And we, I, I flew in overnight on a red eye and got to Geneva, got to the hotel. Under the stealth of darkness. Totally, took it, literally landed at the La Reserve Hotel. I will never forget, it's beautiful on Lake Geneva. Jumped in the shower, got out to lunch. We started at lunch and by, and we went straight through, we had lawyers back in LA. I knew that we had to close the deal at the table if we were gonna do something. And, and the ace in the hole was that we were gonna put on 
hundreds and hundreds of hours and that we were also going to do a primetime Olympic style show when everyone's asleep in Europe, recapping the day that ended up being with Bill McAtee and Martina and John McEnroe on our team. Uh, this was a crazy idea because we were very small. So we got it done. And I, you know, that was, that was a watershed moment that I don't know how to describe. I, I, for the rest of the night, I didn't know what to do with myself. I actually punked my team and called them back and said the deal was dead. There was just dead silence on the phone. Um, and then of course I let him off the hook and, and told him that we had closed the deal, but they couldn't tell anyone. And then I wandered the streets of Geneva till dawn uh, just because I, I, there was no way I was going to be able to sleep. I was electric. It was like every cell in my body was, oh, my God, what did we just do? I remember calling my dad and telling him, looking at Lake Geneva, and I ended up getting lost. And then I couldn't get back to my hotel. I just barely got back, got on the plane. You and walked through the night. I literally walked through the night, got home, and called a gentleman by the name of John Skipper, and huh. said, you don't know me. The French had told him moments before, and I said, you don't know me. John Skipper, the former head of ESPN, everybody. Yes, he was the head of, of, of um, programming there at the time at and became time. one of the great and most visionary CEOs you could ever have and a brilliant guy. Now so he calls, he's called Skipper. And said, you don't know me, um, and you probably don't like me right now because you've probably heard my name, but I think I actually, this is going to be better for you. And to his credit, rather than jumping down my throat and saying, what are you talking about? You just stole the French Open from me, Roland Garros. Um, he said, I, well, I'm all ears. I said, I think that we can work together to grow the sport because you really only want those 50, 60 hours because you've got other stuff to worry about. We will be on whenever you're not. And, and guess what? We can also be better by sharing technicians on the back end instead of duplicating to make it more efficient to put our resources into the stuff to make the coverage better. Are you satisfied with your ongoing relationship with ESPN? Well, it is ongoing, and I think that says a lot. That was a long time ago, right? That was 12 years ago. Have they played nice? Um, at... We, we continue to be partners. Uh, there are times when it's gotten difficult and, and John was always very upfront about it. He'd say, Ken, this is a place where our, our, our goals may be diverging, but it didn't mean we weren't gonna be partners. It meant that in the evolution, we were gonna have to endure. And it's a lot like when the marriage hits you know, a tough patch, you don't, you, know, you don't go, well, that's it. You say, okay, well, we're gonna work through this. And we have. You know, they were under siege when Fox Sports 1 and 2 from News Corp were being born and NBC, which was versus NBC Sports Network was emerging as a yeah. competitor. Yeah. BN was emerging as a competitor. The world woke up and said, oh, we want to be like ESPN too. We want an arms race for live content. Exactly. And so I think they went into a bit of a defensive mode. And a couple of our partnerships were casualties, but... What's an example of a casualty? Well, we used to, for example, we used to be the the U.S. Open. You used to have a bigger. You used to have a bigger. We had a bigger footprint, footprint there, there right. because in in the days when we were just growing the game together, before that uh, sort of battle occurred, yeah. um, we would come on 
in the morning with right. the morning show. And then show. they would take it over. And, and they would take it over, but we would actually go to outer court simultaneously so people would have the choice of a cross-platform of Tennis Channel for outer courts. And they shut that down. And, and that kind of went away because they ended up um, you know, getting all of it, including taking it away from CBS. So that was just a moment. But I think that it is, you know, all things will settle themselves out. And again, we always say, we're not changing our name. We're going to be here. Things will ebb and flow and we'll continue to grow. We're going to be focused on tennis forever. And other people and companies' interests sort of ebb and flow depending on where they are in their evolution. So in the big picture of things, it continues to be a great partnership. And we'll see now that they have ESPN+. Plus. There's other players in the world, meaning other media players like an Amazon who we're also in business with. We've always believed that exclusivity is the enemy of tennis growing and that integrated distribution networks are better. Now, you know, our show is an insider show. Um, I saw rough cuts of a Novak Djokovic documentary um, that was unbelievable. Yeah. I, it was done by Amazon. Okay. And us. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I'm springing this on you. That <laughs> I didn't you, see that this you, coming. I heard that you uh, you guys had some skin in that game. Yeah. And I also and I actually saw rough cuts. Um, I, I can't disclose how that happened. Don't want to know. Okay. And uh, the, it was awesome. Yeah. It was amazing. Yes. And I heard that Novak wrote a letter. It said, you know, apologies to Jeff Bezos, but you do not have my permission to to, to play this. Yeah. Um, first of all, what happened? I mean, why? How we we got to get that footage out there, man? Yeah. Well, um, that footage. Can you had, can you explain what happened? Yeah. Um, well, I will say that in the intervening time, uh, the extension of Agassi between the lines led to. Strokes of Genius, which we made about Rafa and Roger and their rival. I did. A, I also did a Sampras, and then my brother did a Vetus, which Vetus. you know showed people what he was really about. We did Arthur Story, um, Bud Collins, and then and Bud. But Strokes was really special because it brought it right to the Novak period. So that that came out in between. Strokes of Genius. Uh, it is a long tour de force documentary that basically jumps off the Wertheim book with the same name yeah. about the incredible final between Rafa and Roger that ended in the darkness when Rafa took it to Roger. Um, and it, they use it as a jump off point to go through their careers. And 10 years later, there they were, doing it again, uncontested, and ten years number later, one there and they, number two. There they were. So that was the 2008 Wimby final. And, and, and please go, if you haven't seen it, see, I promise you'll love it. So we put a lot of heart into that. My but, sense is most of our listeners have seen it, but I still want to preface that. Watch it, it again. So, go, so, so, so it takes, so, so basically the Novak was yeah. the natural next. So prior to us completing Strokes, we were working with Amazon closely and quietly on documenting Novak's uncontested number one run, um, the, arguably the greatest run, following that 08 period of Rafa and Roger. And we well, were- Novak wasn't losing any matches, man. He'd lost nothing and, 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 and it didn't look like he was going to. So we were quietly 
following him with Peter Berg's company and with Amazon. So we decided to do it with Amazon and we were in a cross-platform in launch. Well, you know, and then as happens out of nowhere, you know, the gremlin reaches out of the grass of Wimbledon and grabs Novak, just as we're sort of thinking we're rounding third on this thing. And he has a loss, an early loss at Wimbledon. And then you think, well, he'll be back at the Open. And he didn't regain his momentum. And it was a, there were a number of things that led to that. But this was going to be a very significant multi-part doc. The footage, uh, he's on a plane, he's doing yoga, he's in Monte Carlo with his family. It's just incredible stuff. And look, you have to understand that if you're doing these things in real time. Skiing with his brothers. It's magnificent and it's open. But these are real people. Novak said, I got to put my career and my life first. And that's going to be hard to do if there's a bunch of film out there that's kind of cutting into stuff while I'm trying to figure out how to get back to the place I want to be. Well, he's gotta I got to block this right now. And it was very disappointing, but not to me at all surprising that that would happen. And I, again, I looked at this in the long tail of history. And I and Novak, if you're going to hear this, we've talked about it. At some point, this is the magic. It's not really the real story until you, you, the real story. You, you get back. You have to fight back. The ability to regain your physical strength and your mental confidence, once you've been there to recapture it, may be one of the harder things, right? Getting there is Herculean. Getting back there when you stumble is something that can't be trivialized. I looked at this and said, I know he will be back. There is no question in my mind. And frankly, this is an even better story. The beauty of strokes was the up and down of Roth and but, Roger. But also Novak needs to um, come correct and, 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 and uh, you know, sign the waiver. Let's, let's see that footage because that's the reason why Pablo Picasso was so famous was because of all the footage. Yeah, he was there and they captured People it. Feel, yeah, he captured it. It's, it's and, there and I don't lose a moment of sleep because in the world of posterity, I know this will ha There are absolute truths. You got to fly out there, man. You got to fly to Monte Carlo. Oh, I, he knows I'll go anywhere. You got to get that deal done, Ken. This, the world will see it because the world should see it and it will it. be done properly when the time comes. The lost Novak Djokovic tapes, you have heard it here first. <laughs> That's a goal. On under review. Uh, this is my last question in the third set here. How do you stay on top of the technology? Like I heard a story once of a famous film producer, Brian Grazer, has yeah, like, Brian, wow. yeah, that, that Brian Grazer, he's got these young, people who give him information. Like he sits down at a table and they say, listen, Instagram is this, Twitter is that. Uh, yeah. You gotta have another platform for digital. Nobody's watching. How do you ingest your information in order to pivot and keep up with what is going on? Your business is so bananas right now. Yeah. Um, well, the first thing is to know that we're right there trying to ride the crest. And really the technology is a means to making it easier for people to consume the parts of content and entertainment and information that they want. So if you know who you are and where you're going, then it's just a question of great. What does this development do? What does Instagram do that we're not doing now? What are the different other pieces of social media best for? So yeah, we got a lot of really smart 
young, aggressive people who love the game and who live it. And the real secret, Craig, is just being a fan. And like Peter Goober says, not being afraid to just jump in and th Peter Goober, who- Mandalay Entertainment, Mandalay another Entertainment, big exec. But also Hollywood. a guy who's a visionary, who turned himself from one of the greatest film and television motion picture executives, um, ran, running multiple studios, abruptly into bringing back double-A, triple-A baseball and buying teams and growing those from the ground up. And now the Warriors, the Dodgers, um, the, the soccer, L.A. soccer the team. Soccer. I mean, he's just, you know, one of the more remarkable people. He says it all the time. You just got to be in it, be curious, ask questions. It's just happening around you. And you can't completely, yes, first and foremost, have really smart young people. Let them play. Let them live it. They they live in our world. They know what to do. Cause, but but we all have to be fans. If we're not just the fan and have the natural curiosity and willingness to try to experiment, some stuff's not going to work. Bob Wiley's our head of production, and he says it all the time. We talk about it. He goes, "Well, what what if we try this?" And my answer is, "Well, yeah, let's do that." And he knows, and I know that if it doesn't work, we'll change it. You gotta try stuff. But you know what? We're gonna fail sometimes and we're gonna come on different ways of doing things that help people get a window into the game that's very hard to get your hands around because it's happening all the time. So the technology finally caught up with tennis. And now I think we win because of that. And, and it's about being surrounded by people who are passionate. And frankly, you shouldn't get stuck on chronology. We've got 50, 60, 70 year old fans who are coming up going, you know, I was on the Twitter feed and you know, you should have done this or why didn't you do it this way? I don't think that the calendar age of somebody determines, of course, if you're younger by definition, you're living and breathing with new technology. Creativity knows no age. And I meet 70 year olds, 80 year olds, 100%. who are as curious and creative, I, I bet I- I was just curious how you did but, it. But, but we do it by being purposeful about being relevant today. It sounds like you trust your people. You gotta. Let's move into our third set. This is the 10 ball scramble. This is not a deep dive. Did I say something? You say what comes into your mind or what you want to say, okay? Okay, this could be dangerous. Well, it's, it's more. I think it's more fun than dangerous. It's so. more fun than dangerous. We got the heavy stuff out of you. Good, in thank the goodness. Third. Favorite tournament? Well, I, you know, as parents say, we love all our children equally, and they all have their specialists is what makes it great. But there's this very special place in my heart for Roland Garros because it was our first major, and it's Paris. Favorite court? I play very well on court seven at Malibu Racket. Favorite court? I happen to love the grass courts at Mission Hills country club here in, in the desert, which is where the tournament was founded. And I can, and, and I, I just feel like it's magic when I'm there. But I, but I will say, I have a, my very good friend, Dr. Phil McGraw, who's a great tennis supporter and of ours, has perhaps the greatest hard true court on the planet. And I'm lucky enough to play up there with him and a group of our friends. Dr. Phil. And it is a spectacular platformed court over, uh, the hills of Bel Air that is heaven on earth. Dr. Phil. Yes. Incredible. Incredible court. And he, by the way, curates it himself. On court coaching. Um, makes for good TV. I, I don't even know that it makes for good TV. It was thought to be good TV. I, I'm in many ways though, I like to break through a traditionalist. And I think the notion, you don't get coached in chess. 
And that's what people think, you know, that's the difference. Tennis is both chess, and some people say this, but you have to think of it this way. You are problem solving. The presumption that it's just physical or just straight strategy. If something doesn't work, you're in the moment. So I don't think it ruins the game. I don't think it adds as much as people expected. And I will say that- A lot that of our guests don't like it, by the way. I, I don't, honestly, I'm not strong one way or the other. Let's just have a universal standard. But here's the thing. Paul Anacone, who's on our, and, and, and many of our folks. He's been a guest on our show. Right, and Lindsay Davenport. I mean, all of our folks, Martina Navratilova, Tracy Austin, James Blake, they all are coaches. Jim Courier, you know, all of our folks are coaches because they're brilliant minds. And the idea that just giving a few tips or saying, come go to net if that's what you think is being called from the sidelines or from the bench in between a set is really coaching. Right? It's an idea that has to, it's just a data point that gets processed into the computer of a tennis player's brain. And it's an oversimplification to say that a tip here or there at a moment, it can be helpful. I don't agree. That um, ain't going to win it for But I like, I I don't li agree. I like the idea of being alone. Yeah, they should be alone. I, I, li I think that's what makes tennis special. Well, I want it gone. But it uh, doesn't make it easy. Doesn't make it easy. Off-court coaching, the, the histrionics of coming out of the boxes, yeah. the players looking at their box every three seconds. Yeah. Well, I think the players are looking at their box for support. And because, what do you think about it? Quick. Well, I think looking at it's fine. I think, uh, you know, it's very hard to police that the line between coaching and being supportive is tough to officiate. Favorite player growing up. Jimmy Connors. Favorite forehand. You got to have one player. You love their forehand. Boy, gosh. Uh, <laughs> That's hard. Favorite, uh, I'm gonna say Martina Navratilova. Favorite backhand. Jimmy Connors two-handed backhand growing up. Uh, Roger into Vavrenka into Shapovalov right now are, are, pre are pretty good ones. Favorite serve? Pete. Volleys. Uh, Martina and Johnny Mack. Well done, Ken. Uh, Labor Cup. Absolutely, in every way, shape, or form, magical. It, it, it's Star Wars. Obi-Wan Kenobi, you've got, you know, you've got Yoda on the courts with John and, and Bjorn. Obi-Wan is Rod himself, and then you've got people playing for the safety of the universe. You love it? I love it. I love everything about it. I think it's a template, and there's a lot to be learned from it, and I commend Tony and Roger. and, and Davis Cup. Um, Complicated, uh, will prevail ultimately. In what form, I don't know. We're supportive. I, I certainly love the old format and I know the challenges of it as well. Um, it's been a tough battle and I hope that it all gets worked out. It will, it has to. There has to be team international competition representing the, the countries officially. This is our final set. We call it the king of the court. If you were the king of tennis and you could just wave a scepter, what would you change? I would uh, absolutely separate the player associations from the tournaments uh, in terms of governance um, and put the men and the women together. There's just no question that the synergy of the ATP and the WTA is stronger, and we've proven that this year as we discussed. I would- The mixed events are the best. It's just, well, it's more than a mixed event. It's 
that they need to be working together because they're each other's greatest assets. Look, any great business person knows that portfolio management, if you're in the movie business, you want to be in the movie and TV business. That's why studios don't dump one or the other. They do comedies and dramas. They do reality. You want to have more than one. Tennis is the only sport that can do that. And it's the unique value proposition. But the players should be represented together and the tournament should be represented together. And I think if we did that, we could start seeing the makings of a more natural balance instead of just a political stalemate in governance where you're trying to bring one person over the line to your side. And it's considered player or tournament. Who do you does, support? Does Again, black and white. Does, is, te does tennis need a commissioner? Does it need, yeah, does it need a Peter Uber off? It does. Absolutely. You gotta get that done. It, 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 let's put it this way. We can keep going because tennis isn't going anywhere, right? We're going to be here till the cows come home. But if, if you want to be competitive with other sports, you need to have unity and, and, and alignment, right? We have individual tournaments, individual tours, individual players, individual governance. Every other pro sport has one or just a handful of governing bodies that can That's move it. it forward. And secondly, in terms of monetization and sponsorship, which were sorely uncompetitive in, in comparison to other sports, it's if you're selling your media and your sponsors in the advertising world separately from your events, I'm selling against our events instead of with them. We're the only sport that does that. That makes no sense whatsoever in a world where advertisers and sponsors want scale. We've got scale, but then we chop it up and we make everybody fight everybody to get 50 cents. But my man, first of all, um, thank you. Uh, Greg, awesome. This was Love incredible. What doing, Love it. Um, normally we say you are released at the end of our <laughs> show, but since we're in your suite. We're going to let you guys go. <laughs> Thank you very much. Great to see you. Thanks, everybody. Malibu Racquet Club is the official tennis club of Under Review. Thank you for coming aboard. If anybody wants to practice there, let us know and we will sort you out. Huge thank you to Ken Solomon. His handiwork can be found all over Tennis Channel. If you want to see the Emmy-nominated documentary, Strokes of Genius, it can be found on iTunes. If you want to see the lost Djokovic tapes, please write or tweet to Novak. I kind of want him to win the French and get the true Grand Slam, just so you guys can see this footage. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you want to help support Under Review, get some great perks along the way, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. We really appreciate it. Big thank you to our Patreon supporters, Helen McCusker, Kevin Gammon, and Steve Harris. It takes a village, and we're thrilled you guys are in ours. Thank you all for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. Tell your friends. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbeam, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. We also love hearing from you. So if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Under Review Tennis is our Instagram and Facebook. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.